Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the commissioner of Cozy and the author behind Untethered and Lad the Homecoming, the comic. It's just you and me now, sport. Umar Ditta is here. Welcome, pal. Hi, hi, George. Hi, everyone. We're thrilled to have you here, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where your love of horror comes from? My love of horror comes from, well, as a kid, I was scared of everything. When it came to the films, I'll paint you a picture. The scene that scared me the most as a kid was that scene in Terminator 2 when he was cutting his arm. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is the most scariest thing I've ever seen. He's cutting his arm. It's gross. And then... For like a couple of years, I was like, whenever a horror thing came, I was like, no, no, I don't want any part of it, any part of it. And then I guess it was something similar to Kevin McAllister in Home Alone when he went down to the basement. I was like, no, time (laughs) to face my fears. And um, I think the first film that sort of, well, I I guess it kind of launched my love into horror, but I really picked a really tough film, the first one. (laughs) What's a clockwork orange? Oh, my God. (laughs) And I was only about 12. Okay, so how I stumbled across that is... Over in the UK, well, especially the sort of channels we had, I only had five channels growing up, and Channel 4, which obviously got BBC ITV, which is sort of the mainstay, Channel 4 was a sort of outsider channel, and they were advertising, and I don't know how I came across it, where they were saying, Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange band back on, and they're doing it in a really artistic way, and I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot, I don't know anything about this, I wasn't going to, internet wasn't really prominent around then, so I was like... right. You know, I snuck down past bedtime and I put my VCR in, recorded it, <laughs> just left it recording. And then the next day I was like, what is this? It's got banned. It must be scary. And I was like, oh, my God, it's horrifying. Yeah. It is really, <laughs> as a 12-year-old, yeah, yeah. It makes you be like, well, you could either go one or two ways. You can either go, I'm running away. That's enough. No more. But then I was like, that was traumatizing, but... I guess I'm in now. Right. At that point, you're like, well, it can't get much worse than this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I set the bar very high in terms of horror. It's interesting, too, because A Clockwork Orange was technically not a video nasty, which I expected to be the case. It was just like randomly pulled in the UK. Yeah, By very, Kubrick uh, himself, I think. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm curious as well. I mentioned up top, you're the, the commissioner of Cozy, I called you. You're a big part of the Gorley and Rust community. And I'm curious what you feel is the coziest horror movie. Oh, oh I did not plan for this. See, I'm, I'm a fan <laughs> of this show. And I really, like, when I looked at your previous guests, Mike Hanford, Betsy Sodoro, I'm like, oh, this is some class A people you got here. And so firstly, before I even go to that, George, I want to say, this is a brilliant show you got here. I'm, I know I'm vamping. It sounds like I'm vamping and I might be vamping, but no, this is a really great show. And, and I love these sort of questions that you chuck at your guests. Oh, well, thank you. Coziest horror for me. Okay. Ah, I got it. The thing. That's a good one. Yes. Because it's, yes, there's horrifying space monsters and Rob Bottin's creatures are all over running rampant. But you get the nice, cute husky for about 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like McCready playing chess. He's drinking a nice scotch there. Yeah. You know, everyone's trapped inside. You have to stay all huddled up, wear heavy clothing. Yeah. And, and I it's, get it. It's, it's also like when the sort of friendship, well, I can call it friendship, between Keith David and, and Kurt Russell, that sort of grows in a really bad situation. I'm like, hey, if you can make friends in the middle of the thing, you can make friends anywhere. That's right. That's right. It's about, it's really about learning to trust again. 
Within reason, yes, yes. Trust as much as you're willing to trust, yes. You've written several comics at this point uh, with the third installment of Lad the Homecoming coming soon. Are there any horror comics that you enjoy, and is there any desire to move that way for yourself in the future? Well, when it comes to horror comics, some really good ones, I can never remember the full title of it, but it's done by Ram V, who is a good mate of mine, but he... I think it's for Vault Comics, and it's, I think it's these savage shows, and mm. it's based around colonial time in India, but with vampires and oh, mythical wow. creatures, and it is, it's that gothic horror, but in an area that I've never seen before. So that's one that's really stuck in my craw, and it's it's such a beautiful book. So that is, that is a really really phenomenal horror comic that I've uh, that I thought of recently. And also, thing about Lad is. It does have the sort of crime family and the sort of thriller aspect to it. Right. But there's so much horror that I've tried to put into it and so much sort of just creepy and un- unease. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, a big influence on, on that book is Blue Ruin, mm-hmm. the thriller. That That is the yeah. sort of, like, I saw that and I saw, oh, there's an influence within there. But another big one is, have, have you heard of Dead Man's Shoes? I don't know that one, no. Okay, so um, uh, have, you, uh, have you heard of the film This Is England? I think this is no. I don't know that one either. Sean Meadows, uh, director, not too far from here. Like I'm based in Lancashire. He's he's a Yorkshire lad. So, but from a US geography, it's probably just down the road. But it's like UK is so tiny. It's like oh, they're miles (laughs) away. You know, but (laughs) but what's called Dead Man's Shoes. It stars Paddy Constantine, who was in viewers probably familiar with him in Hot Fuzz Mm -hmm. as one of the the arsehole coppers, the one with the mustache. So he's (laughs) and. Dead Man's Shoes is a really good sort of thriller horror sort of film like I was it was it was a toss up between the film that I selected today and that to be my favourite horror movie wow but I, I, won't, I won't go too much into the film but it's based in the UK you know not too far from where I'm based so that's the way I sort of got my familiarity with the film but it's also really 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 good and it's, it's just basically like a horror thriller revenge movie with a tiny, tiny budget, and it's, I think it's about 20 years old now, I really recommend it to people. But that's not the film I'm talking about today, but, I mean, you know, but please check that one out. Absolutely, and uh, who knows, maybe one day we'll do a spotlight on that instead, and we'll get you oh, back please, on here. Please, but. yes, 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 definitely. But as you say, that's not the movie we're here to talk about today. Today's movie is Manhunter from yes. 1986. A true blue classic. Emphasis on the blue. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the third movie from Michael Mann, having broken out with Thief, another movie that I enjoy very much. Mm -hmm. And then he had a bad experience with the studio chopping up the keep. So there was a lot of pressure on him to deliver a good follow-up. And Manhunter is an adaptation of Thomas Harris's book, Red Dragon, which was itself released in 1981. And the first in what would become a quadrilogy of books related to Hannibal the Cannibal. Now, the rights to this book were owned by Dino De Laurentiis, and there was actually some discussion of having David Lynch direct it, which, good lord, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I can see it, but at the same time, I can't, which is exactly mm-hmm. what David Lynch is, I guess. It's, it's, just, yeah. it's just out of grasp what the David right. Lynch Manhunter would look like. If we all knew what it would look like, uh, he wouldn't be as uh, unique and interesting a director as he is. Yes, so, absolutely. And he was still under contract with Dino after Dune, but David was, uh, he said that he was appalled by the type of violence in this <laughs> and uh, not eager to undertake the movie. So, uh, so Dino brought in Man. 
I saw some reports that it was uh, sort of a fit of spite, and he was just like, his name is like the title. <laughs> oh, so, so take that, David. <laughs> Wait, did, didn't David Lynch do Blue Velvet in the same year? Which is, that film, okay, there's not out-and-out out violence, but... Uh, what's his name? What's the name of Hopper's character? Frank? Yeah, Frank Booth. He's not nice, David. Come on, like... <laughs> come on, David. We see an ear chopped off. Yeah. It's already chopped off when we see it, but it's still gross. <laughs> very gross. And he's a very gross person in other ways yeah. as well. Baby wants to fuck. <laughs> Famously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, just a little side note. On, on Blue Velvet, I, I read somewhere that we're already going off on a tangent, which I think is very suitable for the podcast that we're a fan of which <laughs> yeah. Golia Go- Rush just is full of tangents with a little bit That's of talking right. horror movie but in Blue Velvet I read somewhere that Dennis Hopper well it, he was going to make some sort of like like a drug was uh, you know because that's a drug that he takes has never been explained and David Lynch being not very of that world but interested in that world he was like oh if you take the gas it'll make your voice go high and then <laughs> Dennis Hopper was like no it won't like I've taken gases <laughs> in, so then, like he had so much input on the way that Frank took the drug and how he reacted, and it shows in that film because yeah. Frank is terrifying. He really is. It's it's a great role and a great movie. And frankly, I'm not surprised that it was picked for this very show. And you can hear all about Blue Velvet with my buddy Joe, and yeah. that's that's a fun one. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Blue Velvet rules though. And Frank Booth is a very very scary man. Yes. So I was reading some some information about this movie, and while they were discussing this movie in a book of interviews, Mann said something about his approach to this and what drew him to it that I found very interesting. And he says, Will Graham, the detective in Manhunter, finds himself trapped, stuck to some degree, in madness and nightmare. It bores me to present the events of the story in a realistic style. My approach, instead, is to conceptualize the elements of the plot taking into consideration the various torments of the human spirit. My aim is to exteriorize the spiritual in the expressionist manner, and this always leads me to reject realism. What drew me to the story was its connection to the essence of evil, which emerges in the process of dehumanization that leads a simple human being with no exceptional past to become a killer capable of the most terrible atrocities. And when victims cease being human beings, they become morsels bits of matter. I want to understand just what this is all about, and also something about dangerous psychopaths and the influence of social context on the behavior of individuals, such as fascism and genocide, something I also explored in The Keep. And this rejection of realism and sort of taking what's happening in the story and putting it on screen in an expressionist way, I think is, first of all, a huge success in this movie in particular, but also such an interesting way to approach things. I, I have not heard that Michael Mann quote before. I've, I've heard vaguely why he wanted to do it. I, I, I've seen the documentaries that came with, I think the director's cut, a special edition and everything. But that description that he gave, I'm just like, God bless you, Michael Mann. Can I have that, <laughs> I don't know, put into my marriage certificate or something? Because I just... <laughs> Oh, that, I never heard that before. And I was just like, he gets it. But then, of course he gets it. He made the bloody film. And I'm like, <laughs> that is it. That is exactly why I love Manhunter, where it's it's the perfect sort of surrealism for that thing, where it's, obviously we'll get into it, but some of the imagery by, uh, I think, is it Dante? You know, the Dante Spinati. Like, he, he's that man's guy. And obviously man has all this sort of imagery throughout his other films. But what he does in Manhunter, I'm like, everything has a choice. 
and it's grounded kind of in reality, but it's not, and it shouldn't be, and it is just beautiful. Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe Monitor Beautiful. Yeah, well, I think that you're totally right, and I think that having a story that does feel like something we would still hear about, and it does ground it a little bit in reality. It's something for us to kind of hold on to, but the ethereal moments that happen in this, the sort of... (laughs) the the stylization is just remarkable and it's very evident in the color palette and the tinting scenes done by Dante Spinotti who as we said is the cinematographer and he communicates all kinds of information about the scenes through the color like the cool blues of romance and home life between Will and his wife and you get these greens for scenes that involve subversion and knowledge being gained and it's all like you see it pop up and it's the kind of thing where the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, it just looks nice. Like, it just like, yes. looks like a good yes. looking movie. But then as you revisit it and you really take in the movie more and more, you really start to pick up on what these colors are trying to represent and what they're trying to communicate about the movie and the situation that the characters are in to us as an audience. Yeah, it's just, I know it's a cliche to say it works on so many levels, but it works in so many levels and in different yeah. shades of that levels, which is a lot of blue, a lot of green. And what I also love is if we're talking about the sort of uh, the lighting of each scene where it goes from the the cool blue and, and also what I love is from like where it starts off with the POV shot and you're, it's all this sort of dark backlit and what you would expect would be the next scene would be somewhat dark or something that, again, I love Seven, but that palette is exactly the opposite <laughs> of Manhunter where it's just <laughs> gritty and it's just miserable, but it has to be miserable because have you seen the murders that are done in that film. Grotesque. Yeah, absolutely. But with Amanda, what I love is with the beginning scene, it's the POV, tense, and then we're on a freaking beach, and it's the best beach I've ever seen. I've I, I got a feeling that man probably staked that location out himself. I think he does it all himself, because he's the guy from Miami Vice. He knows all that. He, he'll know yeah. what the best colors are, best places <laughs> to do the shooting. Yeah, you know, I, I think that you're right, and I think it really works well together. The name change from Red Dragon to Manhunter, uh, there's two reasons that I found I'm, speculated about I know why. one. I know one. I know one. I, All I, right. Yes, yes. I want, I want, I want to yes, jump the Umar, gun on this one. Call on you. Year of the Dragon, the year before, in 1985, which was another DG. I, I, like, I love this film, and I love finding out information about some you know like with obsession you just gotta know more about something so i was like it was deg that it was a flop was yeah it mickey big rourke? time flop mickey rourke in that one i believe so not uh, not exactly a success no it, for dino but but what i love about him is again when when you're going back to when dino said ah his name is man man hunter it'll do which i'm not surprised he was like oh it's red dragon it's going to be crap even though it's totally different plot and everything's totally different it's going to be red that yeah. was the first one at all, but I'm interested to see what the second point would be. Yeah, so William Peterson, who goes on to play the role of Will Graham, said that it was also related to the string of kung fu movies that had been released in the 70s, both by Bruce Lee and his imitators, and that Dino didn't want people to expect an action movie like that. That said, everyone involved, except for Dino, did prefer the name Red Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've got the canon documentary i want a dino documentary on how yeah right of the of the because that that have been like some amazing films with the deg group but it's and he works cool. with some real weirdos <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm like <laughs> just whoever did the canon doc please look into this guy's life and uh, another guy that i want to know about is that is it saban 
uh, you know, the, yes. the power. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all three of these guys are very, very interesting. And if you ever want to have a documentary that might, I don't know, win an indie award or somewhere, pick on one of these two guys. That's all I'm saying. Just, just, yeah. yeah. Point the camera at them. I totally agree. That Canon documentary is really good. Oh, I recommend yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> a lot of interesting research went on to create an authentic feeling to this movie, starting at the top down. While spending three years writing the movie, Mann spent time with the Behavioral Sciences Unit to learn how profiling works, and led Brent Turvey, current director of the Forensic Criminology Institute, to call the movie one of the most competent blends of cutting-edge cutting edge forensic science and criminal profiling he'd seen. Bless you. God so bless there you, you go. <laughs> Mann also struck up a correspondence with Dennis Wayne Wallace, a convicted murderer and paranoid schizophrenic who'd become obsessed with a woman he barely knew, killing people to, quote, save her, and becoming convinced that Inagata DeVita held a special connection for them, which is, of course, alluded to later in the movie when that song is utilized in a pivotal moment. I don't want to say thank you to this guy, but well, whatever. <laughs> But William Peterson also was involved. He did a lot of research. He worked with the Violent Crimes Unit at both the FBI and the Chicago PD, reading files and talking with investigators, including those on the Richie Ramirez case, about how they coped with the disturbing crimes and learned to compartmentalize. However, he made sure to mention, as we see so frequently from the violence rates of police officers, both in the field and domestically, that it is not really possible to shut that off and that it does impact you and trying to just leave it behind is not it's not really feasible <laughs> no it, it, i think it's one of the documentaries that i saw that peterson that after he did the film he like he has his curly sort of is it brownish you can't really like, sort of it's like a dirty blonde dirty blonde sort of hair and after he was done with the film and obviously with the research he did he had a bunch of plays he had to do and it stuck with him the film stuck with him mentally and so much so that he actually had to dye his hair like blonde to just get rid of will graham yeah i mean i get it i'm sure not only was having to get into that mindset but all the research that you do kind of really leaning into the depravity and the sort of low points of humanity you know it is the kind of thing that can really stick with you and you know i, I it's it, it's it's a difficult role i think that he signed up for in this yeah and he nailed it spot on because i know we're talking about manhunter and i, I don't like talking about the the, th the film that was made about 15 20 years after this by brett ratner that's all i gotta say what, how did he get attached to that how how it, with that cast like, yeah no 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 i'm just, just a mini rant but ed norton brilliant actor love him in so many things but william peterson is will graham as far as i can tell he got it spot on and that is just yeah you can tell that the research and all that stuff is just paid off on screen yeah i, I totally agree first of all big thumbs down on brett ratner <laughs> from george <laughs> second of all i agree I, I love ed norton i think he's a really really talented actor but when you compare the two performances and you look at the way that peterson really he's able to internalize the sort of similarities and the darkness between the people that he's chasing and himself. And that is what Lecter latches onto. Yeah. That's yeah. what Dollarhide finds interesting. And that's something that I don't know that Norton really captured in the same way. Also to give credit to the cast, not the director, but to the cast is that Manhunter was one of the first films of its kind. Just, mm -hmm. just as seven was the first of its kind taking the serial killer sort of trait further. And then right. after, after, seven you had multiple 
copies of it and Manhunter was at the front line and that's why Peterson didn't have any sort of lingering pre predetermined sort of ways to play it or even Anthony Hopkins in the film which because in Red Dragon they had so many extra scenes because they're like well we know who's going to sell them this is what everyone liked exactly (laughs) which that's another like just I'm just shaking my fist (laughs) just thinking about Red Dragon but uh, yeah man but yeah it's that's what Ed Norton had before he had like 20 years 15 well you know 15 years of lector lector mania and all that stuff so he had to work with what he had Mm -hmm. he did fine I guess he did what he could yeah Yeah. I, I agree look Ed you tried, pal. We love you. Come on the show. We'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, if you come on the show, I will apologize to you, but not to Brett Ratner. I am not going to promise that I'll apologize to you, Ed. Well, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's keep it spicy. Let's keep it spicy. Yeah, yeah. Joan Allen, who plays Reba McLean, she also did some research. She met with the New York Institute of the Blind. She walked around New York City with a mask over her eyes to get the rhythm of actually walking as though she were blind down. Tom Noonan, who plays Francis Dollarhide. I can't. I every time I accidentally called him Francis Dollar Hype, which that's a good DJ name. <laughs> yes, with the teeth and the stockings. Yes, exactly. yes, yes. <laughs> he started doing research on serial killers, but he was disgusted and decided to kind of take it in a direction that he didn't really see in his research that of doing right by his victims, that he felt like he was doing this out of love, not to hurt them. Now, he did ask that during filming. Nobody who was playing his victims or pursuers be allowed to see him and for people to call him Francis, which led to separate flights and hotels from the rest of the crew and the cast. And he would just sit in his trailer alone. There's okay. There's a a brilliant story I know about Tom Noonan and Francis Dollarhide regarding his casting. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's basically Michael Mann and uh, uh, the casting director. uh, They were just there doing the roll call for who's going to play Francis Dollarhide. And Tom Noonan came up, and it was that scene where Lounce and Dollarhide meet. So it was that intense scene. Mm-hmm. And what Tom Noonan was doing, he was giving his sort of his uh, monologue that he was doing. And first, he was just starting off as normal. But then as he was rising in intensity, even though Michael Mann was behind him, he felt Michael Mann coming up out of his seat, getting excited, seeing what Tom was doing. And Tom was feeding <laughs> off that energy. And he ended up terrifying this poor little lady who was in place <laughs> of Freddie Lounce. And it was just, that's how he got the role, because he was just so terrifying, so intimidating. And then he could feel Michael Mann just visibly getting excited that he was scaring this poor little bone. You know, I think that that really comes through because... Part of what makes the character interesting is that there is a lot of sort of like questioning that happens Mm -hmm. in terms of like what he's doing. And, you know, in that particular scene, when he sees the fear that he has struck in this character of Lowndes, you know, he does sort of like come into his own in the scene and, and he does like let that energy kind of pass between them. I think that he really brings something to this role that would have been very easy for this to just become another like random killer yeah he he makes it his own and i think it's also because before this well what did we have maybe well which dirty harry was it where there was a you know based on the was it zodiac oh yeah yeah one of those sort of basically when there was that killers in the past they were all sort of hey i'm crazy look at me i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna you know all this sort of stuff but yeah that research that you mentioned that tom noonan did it makes sense because it really mm-hmm. shows on the screen of how scary he is but how also how soft and gentle he is at the same time despite being six foot seven yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, 
died just scary. I did also think it was pretty funny that the first time he met William Peterson was when Peterson comes crashing through the window. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, hi i'm will hi i'm tom how you doing (laughs) he literally like shows up like right in his face too like that's what i mean that's a funny funny image but because of this decision this and his size which he had just started bodybuilding as well the atmosphere on set when he showed up was very tense and people were kind of scared of him in a way that he was able to leverage into the isolation of his actual performance i think that's really where the difference lies is in him truly not feeling like a mean person, but feeling like an isolated person. Yeah, and I also love, speaking of, you know, Dollarhide Noonan is, they were going to have, you know, how that Ray finds in the remake has the tattoo all over and there's really like a whole part of the Red Dragon. And, and I know it's true to the book, but come on <laughs> so but 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 what i love about it is they had the tattoo in testing and he had the big tattoo all over him and then i think it was man who said no nah, this trivializes him get rid of it and i'm like yeah yes it would have trivialized him like oh yes this is the big dragon i have on my chest this is why i do stuff i'm like okay fine <laughs> Yeah, there are some interesting removals from the book. Like, I believe that the tattoo, like, talks to him in the book. It's been a while since I read it. Yeah, and he also gobbles it up in New York. Right. He does. That happens. in the Because, uh. yeah, it's been, like, a, a while since I read the book. But it was, in fact, I, I saw the film multiple times. And I was like, oh, it's based on a book. I seek out the book. And I was like, oh, this book exactly like the film. But then when it was parts where it wasn't like the film, I was like, the film did it better. <laughs> They were right to cut this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that it is interesting that man did have that sort of insight. They did film the scenes, like you said, where he had this big old tattoo on his chest. Spinati agreed that it trivialized the struggle that the character faced. And so they cut those and reshot the additional footage to replace it. But Spinati did note that in doing so, scenes which he felt had been captured in the beautiful aesthetic of the others were lost because production didn't have time to recreate the original lighting conditions, um, which I think is interesting, you know, sort of an uh, uh, interesting decision to have to make that sacrifice and compromise that artistic vision in order to, I think, do justice to the character. That, that's a real, oh, like a real, well, not Sophie's choice. It's a real Dante's choice. Like, oh, <laughs> Dante. Like, I understand why he did it, but that's generally made me a bit sad. I was like, there's some would have been more beautiful shots in this movie, but they would have had a giant ugly tattoo in it. It's true. Oh. It's so true. These are the decisions that haunt us, Umar. Forever, forever. <laughs> this is a regret that I'll take to my grave, I know for sure. <laughs> So I also saw a list of names considered for the role of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, and each one made me go, wow, that would have been cool, too. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 they are. They are. John Lithgow, yes. you know, he's he's played a bunch of bad guys over the years at this point. Mandy Patinkin, which, <laughs> yeah. that's an inspired choice. <laughs> like, that would have been really interesting. Willie the Freak Friedkin himself, which, that, like, well, I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. And then Brian Dennehy, who I do like, but Dennehy himself recommended Brian Cox when he declined, and the rest is history because... Brian Cox does an absolutely spectacular job with this performance. And I know that everyone is like, Anthony Hopkins this, Tony Hopkins that. But Brian is out here putting the damn work in, folks, and he absolutely kills it. Pun intended. Yes, yes. And and the brilliant thing about this is he is literally in one place. He's always in his cell. He's in nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And 
when I recently rewatched this a few days ago uh, with my wife who has seen it before. But the thing is, she she be like, which one's this again? Because God bless her, she all the weird films <laughs> I watch. She, she sticks around with me for him so <laughs> I, I really do appreciate that about her but when she came to the scene where Will first meets Lecter who is spelled Lector in the, right. in the which is awesome yeah but when, when it's the, better yeah exactly and then by the end of that scene when Will has to leave she was like oh that was a good scene that wasn't it he was really good him I was like yeah yeah he's, he, that guy is awesome and speaking of that research what you probably will probably talk about it here what Brian Cox did in terms of research it's like everyone did their work on this movie everyone put their punch punch their what's called work card in and all that stuff they they earned hours they did they absolutely did and and yeah to your point he said that he studied the Scottish killer Peter Manuel Mm. who he said was a sociopath and didn't have a sense of right or wrong and he, he felt like all the best movie villains uh, were from Europe and that they just had a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that, it, was it Cox who said, like, evil isn't isn't having been, like, going back to when I was saying the Dirty Harry, which, again, Dirty Harry is awesome and all that stuff, but obviously this is, like, the next stage of the sort of nuanced killer, serial killer, but it wasn't <clears> being crazy or telling people, I'm going to kill, I'm going to do this, but it's the removal of of good a removal mm-hmm. of a morality which his lector definitely had and like i said he was only in that cell <laughs> anytime he seems on the cell <laughs> or on the phone and he was creepy throughout yeah you know even the moments where he's being friendly and i'm doing big finger quotes here <laughs> yeah. you know, he still has this real menace to him you know the friendliness uh, people note doesn't really extend to his eyes and uh, he's just great he's really good in this can I have your home phone number? How he says that, how he says that. And, and I, I can almost pull it off because I know he's Scottish, but close enough. But how he says that always chills me whenever, because you see, look at Will's response and he's like, fuck no. But he doesn't yeah. say anything, but it's all in his face. of like, fuck you, Will, mate, yeah. no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was also a list of alternates that Dino wanted for Will Graham, including Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, and Paul Newman. But Mann insisted on Peterson after seeing his performance in To Live and Die in L.A. Mm. Again, we've already talked about how much Peterson is really bringing to this. I think that he is the right choice for this. You know, none of those other ones, at least with the people playing Lecter, I was like, you know, I could see what they might bring to it. I don't think that any of those actors are bringing anything that Peterson isn't also bringing to this role. He was the perfect person for this role. I, I can't think of... I, I know uh, there's uh, fans of the Hannibal TV show, which, again, I, I'm fine with it. I'm not one of the super fans who sort of, you know, stands um, beautiful Lecter. What's his name? Tall guy. I forgot his name. Oh, uh, Mads. Mads, Mads yeah. Mickelson. Yep. Yeah. He, he, him as a Lecter, like, yeah, I'm fine with that. But the guy who plays Will Graham, he's, again, fine, but he's no Will Peterson in Manhunter. Who is? Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. The movie finally released on August 15th, 1986, grossing $8.6 million in the U.S. on a 14 to $15 million budget, perhaps sunk by critics really laying into the look of the movie, saying that it was style over substance. Although over the years, the reception has warmed up, especially as people revisit and appreciate the look of it compared to the more well-known Silence of the Lambs and Brett Ratner's follow-up adaptation of Red Dragon in particular, you know, part of what people like about this movie is the look of it. And, you know, people might... I've seen people throw around the word dated, and I think that they are really underestimating... Heresy. Heresy. (laughs) First of all, yes, heresy. Yeah. And second of all, 
I think that they're really underestimating the importance of sort of an archival look at the aesthetic of the time, you know? Yeah. This movie functions as a time capsule. It brings us back to the mid-80s when things were soaked in neon. And, you know, you have these incredible blues and greens that permeate the movie. And you look at something like this compared to the, like, puke green tint that is on so many movies these <laughs> yeah. days. Yes, yes. <laughs> when it comes to my sort of perfect directed aesthetic, it's between Michael Mann and John Carpenter. And they're both mm-hmm. sort of, if there's a Venn diagram, there's a big crossover between the two. Because mm-hmm. what they did was in, in a short amount of time, you know, their, their sort of niche sort of style, visual style that they were bringing, but they did it so well. So it, it was really weird when I heard about, at the time, critics hated it. I, I think they were probably, because I, what, I th- what I've heard before is, because this is back in the day where if you were a TV director, you do TVs or, you know, TV actors, you don't cross over. You know how it was. It's all, now Netflix owns everything and Amazon, it's fine. <laughs> but back then it was like, I got a feeling that the critics sort of thumbed their nose towards Man because he was the tacky Miami Vice guy. What's he trying right. to do? Stay maybe? in your lane, man. Yeah, Man with two ends. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. That's why I'm like, because if this was done by any other director, it probably would have at least at the con- at the time when it released, it would have been a bit more. Yeah, this is exactly what such and such wanted to do. But they're yeah. like, this is TV man. No, no, he doesn't belong here. I think you may be right. And I went to go check in on what Roger Ebert had to say, and he was not reviewing at the time. So that's good. No, no input from Raj. Yeah. <laughs> he did like Heat, though. I will say. But that was because he probably saw De Niro and Pacino. Was like, I got it like this in there. <laughs> he is a brilliant movie, but it's like he was the Paddington two of its time, wasn't it? Wow! Like, like, like I wow. think I'm always saying this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just thought of it now, but yeah, I don't think truer words have been told. That yeah, he is the Paddington two of 1995. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> I will take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell everyone that now. <laughs> yeah. To get into the actual movie, mm. it does a great job of getting you off balance right away, which you sort of talked about this opening a little bit already. But first of all, man has them use varying frame rates to make things feel a little off, which is by itself very effective. But also, it's very freaky for him to put us in the shoes of an intruder right away. You know, watching mm. someone sleep with a light pointed at them and they start to wake up and we transition away to the credits with no clue of what's happened to them, just heavy breathing. Oh, yeah. It's really freaky. It's, it, what I also love about it is that it, it sort of mirrors the scene later on because it has a shot of Dollar Hyde's van. Mm-hmm. I think it's either right at the beginning or right at the end. And, you know, it starts off with his van and it's really weird. Yeah, it's like... And then the POV shot mm-hmm. and and then you just get the neon green manhunter which is a very <laughs> of it yes very of its time but oh that's some you know typography i want on my computer like that is that'll be my go-to yeah i want to type in letters in that sort of font bright green <laughs> <laughs> when it comes back in though we see two men sitting on opposite sides of a dead branch on the beach really amazing framing as we've already discussed but get ready to hear that a lot because i'm going to talk about the framing in this movie a whole heap Yes, yes, and and I'm going to let him, so deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) The man on the left is Will Graham, a former profiler for the FBI, now retired after being attacked by Dr. Lecter and having a breakdown. The man on the right is his former boss at the FBI, Jack Crawford, played by Dennis Farina, who I think is very good in this movie. We haven't even talked about Dennis Farina yet. Oh, Dennis Farina was brilliant. Talk about a glow-up from Thief... What was he? He was a henchman in Thief. Yeah. Yeah, like a guy who got shot. To Jack Crawford. 
just in the matter of five years. I just like good on you, Dennis. Hell yeah, good for you, Dennis. The reason that he's there though is because they need Will's help with a new serial killer case. Someone who's operating on the lunar schedule. Now, we see some of Jack's domestic life and what he'd be giving up, which I think is really important to sort of establish these stakes early on. And he's protecting turtle eggs with his son, he has sex with his wife, and yet he still can't resist being drawn in. I remember about 10 years ago, when I was, you know, even totally obsessed with this movie, I, I actually read the script. Oh, obviously, I, I used it as a ruse of, oh, I write scripts for comics. I need to learn how scripts are done. But also, I wanted <laughs> to read the script on Manhunter. Sure. <laughs> and what Man wrote in the script was, you know when Jack Crawford shows Will Graham the pictures of the Leeds and the Jacoby family, when he shows a picture of the family? Right. He, he, Man even writes in the script, instead of showing gruesome crime scene photos, he shows a Alive. family. And he's like... That, you put that in the script saying, like, yeah, we expect crime scene photos, but we show family photos here. And uh, that is really interesting. Even in the script, that man was able to tap into that sort of nuance of Manhunter. Yeah. You know, Will promises that he's going to just look at the evidence and stay away from any chance of physical harm. But once you're part of the investigation, that's not really like a promise that you can make. It's not up to you, Will. It's not, not, yeah. you, know, you can't really make those calls. but Right. He heads to Atlanta to visit the most recent crime scene. One thing that I really like here is that so much of this really does deal with the symbiotic between profiler and killer, and that it's all about how he has to really tap into his dark side to get into their head. And in this moment, as he enters the house, he looks very much like an intruder himself, really putting himself in the killer's shoes right away and drawing that parallel for us to sort of immediately be like, oh, I can sort of see the setup of this theme that's going to be coming into play. It's also like the little step where when the police officer drops him off at the, sh- the crime scene and the you have the, <laughs> the awesome close-up shot of his tape recorder and the Olympus Cumbria. Yeah. I'll tell you, it was just proper frequent when I was watching with my wife and I was saying, there's going to be a close-up of that Olympus Cumbria. It's going to be in my head. And right now, and she was like, how do you know that? I'm like, I've seen this one millions of times. It's awesome. But then when the copper says, do you want me to go in? He goes, no. And it's like, that is I haven't seen that before in a film obviously they've always done it ever since but that was just a really like interesting little thing little things really make a lot in this movie yeah and when he finally enters the master bedroom it's soaked in blood oh, the yeah. mirror is horrible. Smashed. it's gruesome this is the first real look at sort of the aftermath that we've seen because as we said we don't see what happens in the cold open the photos are of the living family And for us to sort of be thrown into this room where everything is dark until he turns on the light and we're just hit with it, it's really shocking how much of the, like, viscera has been just spread around the room. It is jarring to say the least. It is, even even when he's in the house and, like he said, he looks like an intruder walking in, you're like, oh, I'm sure they would have cleaned it up and it would have been just, oh, he would have... No, there's blood everywhere and it is... I gotta remember. I watched this at the same age I was around. I was watching Clockwork Orange, so I was like <laughs> maybe about thirteen or something like that. And I was like, "What is this weird movie?" And then instantly drew me in. I was like, "Whoa!" Uh, it's juxtaposition throughout this film is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And you know, he takes his time. He goes through the forensics, and then he returns to his hotel to watch the home movies of the family that the FBI gave him. And I gotta say, I love the look of this hotel atrium. Oh, <laughs> I, I love. My favorite, that, that shot of that elevator going up, that is peak man. If you we were going to like say peak man, it'd be that like weird 
glass elevator, Willy Wonka elevator, and that could cause up. <laughs> I did look it up. Uh, that's the Marriott Marquis in Atlanta, once the largest atrium in the world, until dethroned by the Burj Al Arab in Dubai in 1999. A fact I bet that not one single person will care about except me. And me, and me. If I ever go, make my way over to the States, me and you are going to that Marriott. Wow. We are going. It's a date. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> he watches the tape, and he tries to get into the killer's mind, suspecting correctly that the killer touched their eyes with his gloves off. This is the first sort of real insight that he brings, and, and we see that he is sort of slipping back into it, because he is, like, how is he doing it? Like, what is, it's about being seen and the visual nature of it, and, oh, man, it's eerie. It's a soliloquy <laughs> he gives to a VCR recording like it's oh and and i also love when he when he figures it out and he pushes pause on the vcr so violently and he rushes to the <laughs> phone i'm like yeah own it man that is brilliant yeah <laughs> he's fucking ready <laughs> yeah the next day graham and crawford are accosted by freddie Lowndes, a tabloid writer who wrote sensationalized articles and even a book about the lector case taunting graham who throws him onto a car Clearly, a very sore point for old Shatters Will. Shatters the windshield. Shatters the windshield, and I think that's the first f bomb we hear in the film. I did laugh that they like just walk away from that car. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they wrecked it. <laughs> like they are literally the FBI. Like, <laughs> They're just like, uh, we're just gonna walk away from this. <laughs> yeah, go tell your beat cop. But this is below my pay grade. <laughs> but you caused it. Ah, I didn't hear that. Bye. See, I got killed. <laughs> It is also worth pointing out some of the color stuff here. Like I said, green tends to show up when things are being learned or confirmed. There's a sense of discovery or subversion. And as you can see here in the background, as they confirm the fingerprint theory and in the shirt that William is wearing, although his shirt is sort of an aquamarine here, which I think is interesting because this is still the point where they're like blending the discovery of him slipping back into this role and learning more and leaving his old life behind, but he is still clinging to it as a safety net. It's still not so far behind that he's completely lost it, and his tie is blue as well. I think that not only in the lighting, but in the, the clothing choices, we see a lot of these colors pop up again in, in really interesting ways. That is very very insightful george and honestly that i didn't want to interrupt at all because that is i haven't noticed that before but subconsciously i would have noticed it because i always used to say look at those funky because what sort of pattern are they are they cotton they look like wool i think you're right yeah and it's very strange because atlanta is a hot place isn't it so I'm like, <laughs> that's the thing that's going in my head as well but it's yeah now that i think about it it is that sort of murking of where he was where he's going towards and also, who's actually plays Lounge Steven thingy? Oh man, he's the guy remember. who's in Quiet. Apologies, <laughs> Steven. No, 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 not Quiet Place. What's it called? He's, Don't breathe. He's the uh, blind guy. So what's his name? Freddie Lounge. Freddie, right? yeah, Freddie Lounge, and and that, that's why, like, when you look at him, he's like a little scrawny nerd in there, and then he plays like a marine. Stephen Lang. Lang, I did not that's freaking it. recognize him. Exactly. At all. Holy like, shit! And, and like, when you look at him as Freddie Lounge, when he goes like, "Ah, gotcha," and like, he's got this preppy hair, and he just looks like an asshole. Fast forward 30, 30 years, he's like a marine in, in Avatar, and he's a, a psycho guy in, in Don't Breathe, and he was this close to being Cable in Deadpool. It's insane, but if you go back to the mid-80s, he was 
an asshole at Tatler magazine. But yeah, it's you have truly blown my mind here. <laughs> I had no idea that uh, was him. Hey, that, that's, that was my only goal for today. So I'll, I'll leave you to it. Uh, it's been a good chat. And <laughs> <laughs> to get back into the mindset, Graham says that he's going to visit Doctor Lecter in his cell. Yes, he does want to ask for his insight. Since the doctorate that he has as Dr. Lecter is in psychiatry, but he also, like he said, he needs to sort of get himself back into it. He needs to see Lecter. This scene is one that Spinotti himself has called out as not only just being like a really great scene in terms of the performances, but also for representing the mise-en-scene of the movie and man's predilection for framing things well. Drawing attention to the constant position of the cell bars within the frames, even as the shots cut back and forth between the two characters, the bars always remain between them. And it's a really interesting bar. Sorry, it was because they have glass in the middle of them, mm. which I've never seen before because they're bars. And it took me a good couple of times watching the film. I'm like, oh, there is glass between those bars, which is a very Michael Mann thing to do <laughs> where there's yeah. bars. And I've got that extra, I need that extra glow of the reflection of the glass. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I had found this quote from Spinotti that I thought was interesting. He says, there is nothing in Manhunter, which is just a nice shot. It's all focused into conveying that particular atmosphere, whether it's happiness or delusion or disillusion. In this case, conveying the prison that both men are in and once again drawing a parallel between Will and the men that he chases. There's also a slight Dutch angle to the wide shots in this scene that give you that sense of unease. I think that this is really interesting. And like I said, you know, the framing is such a huge part of this movie that, you know, body language communicates a lot. But for us to really be able to glean so much about the characters and their state of mind, from just the way that the shot itself is composed is something that is not easy to do. And I think speaks very highly of Spinati and man both. Yeah, it is just how it's done. In, and, and the thing is, obviously, my disdain for Red Dragon is one thing. My indifference for Hannibal is another thing. But I do love Silence of the Lambs and I do like the dungeon migs being migs in the corner and all that stuff you know john jonathan deminit who did that one yeah john demi, demi, yeah. demi yeah so that is he went bold and it was a really good film and everything about that worked i just love that five years ago six years ago it was it's so clinical it's it's literally like like a hospital isn't it? it's just like a typical hospital but how it's angled and how they play off each other and how because yeah it is you get the Dutch angle when you're looking into Lecter but when you look at Graham it's pretty much square on which sort right. of just it just heightens his uneasiness and like he wants to get back with Lecter like understand what's going on but Lecter just does so many offhand remarks that just like he's about to leave at any moment Will like he just can't yeah. be there yeah I think that there is a lot of really great dialogue throughout it but one thing that really sticks out to me is right at the end, when Lecter agrees to help, he does also say that he knows that Will is there really to, quote, get the scent back. And he says, you know how you caught me, Will? Because we're just alike. Smell yourself. Yes. And Will literally runs out of there. <laughs> and I, we haven't even touched about the soundtrack yet, because I love when the score, when he's running down the sort of architecture of the places that man has chose is just like i don't even know what that building is i think it was like uh, the high art museum yeah something like that which is 
bonkers because it goes down in this sort of like a it's not steps it's like a it's like crisscross exactly like. And, it, and, and, the, and the score is just going louder and louder and oh that, that is just yeah. brilliant yeah I, I agree I think it really is brilliant I think that it's his biggest fear is being like these people and Lecter has nailed him again that he can't get at him physically but he can still get under Will's skin and for him to say we are the same that is the worst thing that he could have said to Will. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just love the sort of little lines he has, just just chipping away at him where he goes, uh, like I mentioned, the "Can I have your home phone number?" And he just, I love mm-hmm. how he just lets it hang and he just stares at him with his slick back hair. Again, I love that Lecter has. He looks like a greaser. In it. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he's greasy as fuck. He is. He is. Well, it's all the human meat he eats. Obviously, the gristle <laughs> just stays there. <laughs> but but uh, it's just also when he goes like, your hands don't look like cop hands anymore, and that shaving lotion was something that a child would choose. There's a ship on the bottle. These are lines that are in the book, but just how mm. Cox delivers them. Like, if I ever do have the chance of meeting Brian Cox, I'll be like, can you just say to me that if you want the scent, smell yourself? And he'd probably look at me and say, who the fuck are you? Get out of my way. But if I can, that'll be one thing I'll request from him. To touch on the clothing again, when Will gets outside, he loosens his shirt and his tie, which, as we've already established, help represent his family with the blue. And the safety of his family is being pulled away because, as Lecter claims... He is becoming, he has the scent now. He can dive into this and uh, pulls that tie away, and, and there there goes that family safety. Mm. Freddie does spot him leaving, though, and Graham's mug is splashed across the front page of the Tatler the next morning. Lecter fakes a call to lawyers and actually manipulates a secretary into giving him Graham's home address, which th- this is a great scene oh, as well. He's so smooth when he does this. He just, <laughs> what I love about it is when, when he first brings the phone in, the security guard, what I love about this is how they don't treat him with something, oh, he's a serial killer. Like, I'm pretty sure the security guard says, turn around, face the wall, or I'll miss your face. <laughs> <laughs> he says that, and Lecter just applies his turn around and goes, and, and, and just the way he responds, I think he says, oh, thank you so much. I'll call you when call I'm you done. When I'm done. <laughs> yeah. and he just, but it's also when he says that line's like, oh, uh, uh, I'm sure she has a Rolodex next to her phone or something. He goes, oh, no, no, she doesn't. I bet there's a cold caddy there. It's so smooth. <laughs> Scroll that finger right on down to G. (laughs) Yes, a Will Graham. And I said, oh no, and he finds his home address. So easy. Yeah. And this is before Google and Facebook. Before Google and Facebook (laughs) is insane. We get a little bit of sort of that like wry humor there where he's like, he's like putting gum in his mouth while being like, I don't have the use of my arms, operator. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, and I'll have to catch a Federal Express in about five minutes. It's just how yeah. that if if that guy was to call me now, I would probably give him my bank account and, and your know, car details just because he's so trusting. He sure is. <laughs> he Graham flies to Birmingham to investigate the first crime scene, and Peterson said that man hadn't been allowed to film on the plane, so he just booked tickets for the crew on a flight from Chicago to Florida checked in the equipment as their carry-on, and he convinced the passengers and crew to be cool by giving them Manhunter crew jackets while he filmed. <laughs> Which, imagine being the people around there who are just like, check out this rad Manhunter jacket that I got for being on a plane with friggin' Michael Mann and the crew of Manhunter. <laughs> Was that kid an actor then or not? The one who saw the pictures? 
that's I think that she was. I think okay. that she was. Because that would have been really, really like borderline like the brood sort of stuff where <laughs> oh just go with it, kid, it's fine. You're gonna see some horrific <laughs> pictures. They're not real. Well, maybe not. Who knows? Use it. <laughs> if David Lynch had directed it, maybe we would have gotten that behind the scenes featurette from Twin Peaks where he goes, Make your noise. <laughs> <laughs> David Lynch. Yes. But he, uh, yeah, like, so they're on the, the plane here. Graham dreams of his wife and a big blue engine for his boat. Again, that blue coming in. Lots of interesting close-ups. Unfortunately, in real life, his folder fell open, spilling out the crime scene photos and scaring the shit out of the little girl <laughs> next to him. I really like the dude, like, behind him, peeking over the yeah, back yeah, of the like, seat. What, what's going on? That's classic airline behavior, baby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's and I love in the dream that Will is sporting some nice pink shorts. Like you're wearing them well, very well. Dreamlike, you know that that pink tends to come back in these ethereal dreamlike mm. moments. I think that that is uh, again a very deliberate choice to give him those uh, little pink booty shorts there. Yeah, that he is he's making them work, folks. Yeah, yeah you are working with them very well <laughs> but yeah it is interesting that i always thought it was that with the dreams with the close ups but this information you're adding regarding the colors is it's part of the pun coming to light now but you know it's wow, all making there you sense. Go. yeah <laughs> coming to light yeah he does also while he's there he has his blue tie to anchor him and he investigates and finds a candy wrapper at the base of a tree when he looks up he finds the rope of an attached tire swing. He climbs up there and he finds a few more clues, including a carving in the tree and a sawn-off branch, which they actually find out was not sawn, but clipped to ensure that he could see. And Crawford and Graham are contacted by the warden in charge of Hannibal Lecter, Fred Chilton. And they found a note yes. from Francis Dollarhide to Hannibal now that he knows he's involved. And the note rambles, but ultimately is like, hey, man, love your work. You get it. These people are just fuel for my transformation with becoming capitalized multiple times, which is very deliberate as well. Yes. He also complains about the nickname that he got in the newspaper, which is the Tooth Fairy, and he specifically calls out Graham. And he got that nickname because he bites people. Yes. And he goes, how he says, investigator Graham intrigues me. Or something like that, or interests me. I'm not like, if a serial killer said that about you, get the fuck out of there, man. That is, no, that is not the attention you need. And I do like it. With, it's, it's kind of borderline. <laughs> it's not like a borderline sort of high school sort of love letter between two people. Like, hey, like, you know, I, you're awesome. I'm like, you know, like a telephone call. It's great. You know, these guys, my, yeah, my parents are bugging me again and all that stuff. Mm, but by the way, we've got to do some killing this weekend. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> like, Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he does give him instructions on how to get back in touch with him, and he says uh, that when they analyze it, that there were uh, instructions to communicate through the personal ads of the Tatler itself. When they find the ad, however, it's ciphered with a book code, but they don't know the book, so they can't decode it in time, and they can't plant a fake, because if it's the wrong book, Dollarhide will know it's a fake. And Graham gives the okay to run it as is without knowing what it is huge huge swing by will graham <laughs> yes yes and the whole sort of from them finding the letter and that whole sequence of yeah it's probably taken for granted now with the, the whole csi zoom in zoom it was so laborious but so like i remember the first time i watched it and when i was oh getting into the whole story i was at the, it was so intense 
but mm. nothing you don't ever see anything happen but you see all these weird lasers happening trying to decipher this code and d- did you realize that one of the uh, i think it's probably jimmy price who's the who's a prince guy he is bulldog from fraser wow uh, I did not realize that because like, that's bulldog. <laughs> it is a really interesting scene. This whole this whole like discussion here. Yeah. There. First of all, you may notice that there was green lights highlighting the photos of the notes and the teeth marks. Yeah. But also, more importantly, I think it's interesting to note. You know, we saw Graham give this promise about how he was just going to look at evidence, and it's so quick that he's willing to offer himself up as bait despite his promise that he says that because we have to run this we're going to do a sting operation and i'm going to be the bait and for him to be willing to dive into this dark part of himself and cast aside which he has to cast aside his sort of family unit and the domestic life that he had grown into you know it's 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 just fascinating how how he has to sort of put himself in these isolated shoes much like Hannibal is isolated in his cell, and Francis is isolated in his everyday life. Yeah, is because that, that whole scene towards the end, where uh, I, th- I think has that sort of Michael Mann motif that always happens, where when there's multiple people on the line, he goes, "Who am I talking to?" and says, "Graham." And I just love that. I just love these little touches where he goes, "Oh, it's Graham and Crawford," and they just go, and it's just, it just, he gets that vernacular so spot on and so smooth and seamlessly. Because even when the part when they go, "Oh, how about if we sweat lecto?" or oh, we tried. Iodine, whatever it was. Oh, and he just told us it's sodium pentothal. That's it. Yes, and, and it was he gave us a recipe for potato chip macaroni dip. salad. No, it was potato, potato chip, chip dip. dip. <laughs> and, 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 and just throw away like that, and, and just how he turns and he goes, you know, baiting with ourselves. And I do love it that half nearly remembered the name of the characters, not the actors, the characters, because I think Ch- Sydney Bloom who's his sort mm. of psychiatrist goes, I don't think that's a good idea. As soon as he says it, and that just and he says it with a blank face, but whenever he says that, I always start laughing because I'm like, I don't think it's a good idea either. He's right. Yeah. <laughs> Graham gives an inflammatory interview to Lowndes trying to get Dollarhide to lash out. They also, at this point, learn that the symbol they found carved on the tree is a Chinese good luck symbol also found on a Mahjong piece that means, you guessed it, red dragon, baby. <laughs> And D- Dino just said, why you put that in the film? Don't do that. Don't. Stop it. It means Manhunter. <laughs> yes, it does. In Chinese. <laughs> it means this is not a Kung Fu movie. So put that in there in the script as well. <laughs> Before Graham like, puts himself through this sting operation, he visits home again. And the love scene with his wife is very dreamlike. And it is very ethereal. And it's kind of a break from the reality of hunting this guy. Mm. And I think that, you know, we see the pinks and the yellows that lend into these moments, sort of counterbalancing the blue, which are huge swaths of blue in this scene. Because, again, it is sort of like him immersing himself in that safety to prepare himself for what's coming up next. Yeah, and, and I think in the director's cut, they put an extra scene after the, you know, Will says, put me in the sting operation, and just before he shows up with his wife, there's an extra scene that basically says, oh, by the way, we've got your wife in a hotel here, because when I when I watched <laughs> it again, because uh, I watched the original version on, the, the theatrical version on a few days ago, I was like, Wait, they don't really explain how that happened because they mentioned. That <laughs> yeah, the I hotel. assumed he just went home. No, it was <laughs> because they mentioned it's a hotel, and then I remember in, oh, wow. in, in the director's court that it's a bit like a faded sort of, sort of shot, but it's in the same angle where he goes, "Oh, by the way, we brought your wife in," and he goes. <laughs> 
thunks, and then they lead to that. It was just Michael Mann leaning into the camera and being like, by the way, we have your wife in a hotel, okay? <laughs> Full ADR, yeah, it's, it's, it's Dennis yeah. Rina talking with Michael Mann speaking over. <laughs> he goes for a walk to act as this bait, but the man that they spring the trap on is, in fact, just a passerby. This is a very funny scene when the well, guy you're is walking like, in slow motion. I use that every now and then. Being mugged here. Yeah, I use that all the time when just say if, if I'm when people aren't moving fast enough. I'm, Why are you all moving in slow motion? No one understands where it's from. Except well, 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 yeah, it's a very good scene. Yes, and uh, I don't blame you. <laughs> it's a very good one. It's a it's a very well the uh, comical break that you get in Manhunter is very few and far in between. So you try to cherish them when they show yeah. up. I think you're really right in that it would be very easy for this movie to feel overly grim. And I think that Michael Mann understanding when to give us a little bit of a break is is a, an instinct that not everyone would have and really helps to elevate this movie. Oh, yeah, I agree. 100%. He, he just adds it at the right time. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Lowndes is the one actually being targeted, and he's kidnapped by Dollarhide in the parking garage. Now... This is the first we're seeing of him, period. And it's not much, just his giant hand and his feet standing steady as Lowndes is lifted up with ease. That's some scary shit, man. Yeah, that is so good. Because it, it, it starts off with, and I love this little thing by uh, Stephen Lang where he looks into his Porsche and goes, oh, someone banged my door. So he stares at <laughs> it for a second, and then you just see Dollar Hyde just lift him up <laughs> from the ground and chloroform him. And I'm like... <laughs> like yeah because he even has that shot underneath where Lowndes little legs are just kicking away <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's intense and Lowndes wakes up strapped to a wheelchair and being threatened by Dollarhide and we kind of already touched on this when we talked about the audition but it's a very interesting scene in sort of the way that Dollarhide comes into himself here but this is our first time really seeing him 55 minutes in and I love our first look at his face you know Lowndes is talking about how he's scared to look and it creates this kind of interesting audience surrogate where we're also like oh man it's finally here this is the moment we're finally going to understand what this guy looks like and when the killer finally gets him to do it it is a very shocking image with like pantyhose covering the top half of his head and his his huge hands splayed out and just his gentle voice about here I am and like and, and I'm pretty sure there's like a like an art deco dangling thing behind him. Yeah. It's, it's very jarring, very weird. Very the whole like the whole apartment is extremely like space themed. Like he's got a huge <laughs> picture of like the landscape of Mars. Very uh, like a painting of like a star field. All kinds of weird spacey stuff. Th- um, this is another deviation that I liked from the book because the book was it was your t- typical gothic castle where his grandma lived and uh, I was like, yeah okay whatever but this is a really good sort of uh, a diversion from there but regarding this scene just want to tell you that the thing that got me into manhunter was my older brother mentioned to me in because we used to have these sort of compilation things on tv shows of uh, the 50 scariest moments in tv and i think this scene showed up in manhunter um, and like my brother told me about it it was on like a uh, bravo uh, sort of show and it was this very scene which they kind of spoiled but they were like this is Manhunter and it's this terrifying scene then we we're like we gotta s- seek this out and obviously when the next time that it came on TV we got a trusty VCR in recorded <laughs> it and then 
I'm pretty sure because obviously we, well, the way we watch these shows is that we used to put the VCR in, record it, and then we used to pause it at adverts and then play it again, so it would be seamless. <laughs> obviously, with the whole thing, but on that VCR, I'm pretty sure we had Manhunter and the 1989 film Glory for some reason. Wow! We, we just we just put whatever was recording and just put it in. Power there. double feature. Exactly. That, that, yeah, that that is exactly how it should be. Yeah, that works. That strangely works as a as a double feature. <laughs> But it was this scene that that my brother told me about when I wow. when I discovered the tape. He's like, "Oh yeah, watch this film." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, this is scary." Yeah, it sure is. This is a. Re- I mean, like you said, it does kind of spoil things to see it first, but it is a really powerful, impactful scene that it's it's, un- it's easy to understand why it would draw someone in. Mm. I do also, while I speak about sort of the space aesthetic, this is something that just kind of occurred to me while you were talking. Is that I think that this does play into the sort of isolation that this character mm. is supposed yeah. to be feeling. And that he might feel a little alien compared to everyone else. He's this huge hulking man, and he had, uh, you know, a, a he had a cleft palate, yeah. right? And and so he, you know, he's got a scar from where that was repaired. And I think it's easy to sort of see him feeling at home, you know, in like the world of science fiction, and as as like an alien or extraterrestrial, um, especially since he is attempting to break out of his human shell and become the red dragon uh it's a it's just a little, little something interesting that might be a stretch i don't know no, damn it george you've done it again that's a new a new, <laughs> a new sort of level that you've added on to this film that wow because i just thought again going back to the color palette when he first said like, oh that's pretty and i was like that's weird he likes space <laughs> but then again who doesn't like space but that yeah that sort of isolation sort of yeah that's really that really makes sense for dollar hide there we go Final answer, folks. Yes, <laughs> That's yes. what I'm saying it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> he gives a little presentation to Lowndes, starting with William Blake's The Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun, and then a photo of Mrs. Leeds from the beginning of the movie, Mrs. Jacoby, and then the next family that he's planning on murdering, before showing people after their, quote, changing. Yeah. He also repeatedly asks, do you see? Which, oh, that's scary that's as shit. And shivers, <laughs> even just the do you see. And when it comes to the visceral images, we don't see them. Right. We don't see them. And additionally, there is so much of his own like methods are reliant on the audience and creating an audience for himself. And for him... To be like, do you see and get an, an answer in the affirmative is, I think, really helping to push him further into his madness. Yeah, it, it just fuels his literal fantasy mm-hmm. that he has where he's showing the whole movie to Lowndes and and it, and it goes into that the sort of uh, the speech, the soliloquy or the monologue that he gives later where, mm. where he says, what you owe me is not fear. What you owe me is oh and when he put yeah. his giant oh, hands man. again like which i just love it because Lowndes is scared and he doesn't want him to be scared you should be in awe of me you should be thinking there goes the red dragon oh ain't he great like that sort of right. thing but it's, it's just brilliant that he, at, even at this moment he still isn't getting exactly what he wants and he can't control Lowndes how exactly he wants because of the yeah. sheer fear he has yeah absolutely and he does come to rest on a photo of Lowndes and Graham, the one that was uh, in the in the article, and Lowndes begs for his life. And I love, again, this framing here where it's mostly from the back of Dollarhide as he speaks, except for specific emphasis points. Yes. And 
it works so well to sort of keep you off balance to constantly be trying to see this guy you know we've gotten a few glimpses of him here he is covered up with the pantyhose the way that it's angled we're coming at it from a very low angle which communicates his strength but also makes it a little difficult to get a good look at him it's just so well done especially because he is not the important point in this exact moment. Lowndes starts reading this message that was written by Francis that threatens Graham. And as we just see him reading this and like understanding what's about to happen to him, oh, God, yes. it is brutal. It is just brutal and unflinching. They don't look away from that which is, a, you know, like I just said, an interesting, deliberate choice that keeps the audience wanting more while also giving them something that they didn't know they wanted. It is a testament to this film. And I know the old adage is, show, don't tell. But yeah. this, because obviously the other adage is, once you know the rules, you can break them. And this <laughs> film breaks the rules so well in such a yeah. way that is so effective. Uh, because just Lang's delivery of that note... Like, I haven't seen anyone... It, you seem like the torture scenes or oh, I'm being captured. That genuine fear, and I think it kind of plays back to the whole sort of thing where, uh, uh, what's his name, Tom Noonan went all Fran went all the method on Francis. Mm. No one can see me. Keep me isolated. I think Lang is the sort of guy who can sort of play off on that, that I haven't seen this guy forever. Maybe he is going to kill me. Maybe I have signed up for a snuff film. Who knows? I'm terrified. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, uh, you know, he, he finishes this recording... And then gets freaking gnawed on. Oh yes, my Newman. Oh, it's like so good when when because you hear Lang whisper over and over again, which is like a true thing when people are like capturing. If they take off the mask, I'm a dead man because I can't. Like he, said, he keeps repeating that to himself. And then when Noonan goes to grab the glass box, he lets out a little giggle. If if you watch that scene again, he he's walking in, and then when he grabs, the, we'll seal this with. And then when he picks up the box and he puts in the like teeth and what I love about this is the teeth obviously in the book is from his grandmother who used to torture him you don't need that in the movie he just has creepy teeth he puts on yeah. the teeth and then when he puts it on and it's this brilliant silhouette of him the lighting is just brilliant and he just lets out there and then he walks towards <laughs> him honestly and like I, I noticed that on like my third or fourth watch on this film and that just made the scene even more terrifying because he just laughs as he walks towards him yeah, and it's also kind of a brilliant move to use other teeth. Yeah. And sort of create Good luck this, finding them. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. A fake dental record <laughs> of him. Like, it's really smart. Yeah, he's a clever killer. Clever, evil he man. He sure is. <laughs> yeah. And he ultimately, after chewing on him, lights Lowndes on fire and wheels him back into the parking garage of the Tadler as a warning. I want to spin off with that security guard. <laughs> that guy I, great. I feel so sorry for him like just what happened after that because yeah. <laughs> poor guy he is never the same for sure oh no <laughs> couldn't eat barbecue ever again <laughs> uh the fbi finally cracks the message left for dollar hide and it's graham's address and a note that says save yourself kill them oh this is so good i, I love it because uh jack crawford says we got everything sorted. Don't worry about it. And he's like, no, tell me. No, it's fine. Yeah. It's all sorted. No, tell me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so impactful. It's so scary. When we've seen the relationship between Will and Hannibal, 
like we said, the friendship doesn't really extend to his eyes, but there is a certain what feels like respect there. Yeah. And then to find out that this note was like, by the way, fucking kill this guy's whole family is just like, whoa. Yes. Yes. It, it's, it's like the same as like, you know, you think you're making a, a friend at work or something like that. You're all getting along and the guy wears the same clothes as you on the next day or like tells the same joke that you were saying like, dude, not cool. But this obviously is on a much grander skill, but that sort of thing. Like, dude, same thing. yeah, I thought we were cool. I thought we were cool. Come on. Yeah. Th- I actually think those are the exact same level. Yeah. My <laughs> mine might be actually worse. Cause that happens more. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah. So true. And the family doesn't actually die. So yeah, but, it's, but the ramp up to it, I think that has to be a real police officer, the first one that opens at the door, because he's like, please go back inside. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's like, like, there's all this tension because like, people might be coming into the house, uh, Kim, uh, Kim Grease in it. So she's like, oh, like, you know, looking around the house and everything. Like, and then the first thing we get, I, th- I think this might be man's attempt at another center of humor, because that guy who comes <laughs> through the door, he is the most least threatening police officer I've ever seen. <laughs> Meek, meek for sure. I did notice a lot of police officers in the credits, so I think you are correct yeah. that that is, in fact, a real police officer. Graham rushes home. His family is okay, though they're clearly petrified to the point of checking in from other rooms, which is also very, like, fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he even says, like, is he afraid to be for me to be left alone with you? Because obviously he's he's read the tattler now he knows what mm. his dad is yeah and he takes his son grocery shopping and right in front of the jello and god and everyone he explains to his son about hannibal lecter's gruesome crimes and why he had to spend some time in a psychiatric unit afterwards so cozy the most coziest story time about it's, it's, it's like yeah it's like i just thought that it'd be the equivalent of a campfire story but <laughs> in a shopping mall because i remember the, uh, I, I also think that whole scene must have been at least five or six of the million of the 12 million budget because there's so much product placement there <laughs> yeah it's unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got your nabiscos are there they specifically call out folders what, what sort of coffee do you have? <laughs> it's just brilliant but i also love how because they also talk about Jacob Garrett Hobbs, who right. is the obviously because Will Graham's the guy who's successfully taken three serial killers on, and that's the one that I also love that that no one ever talks about him in you know in the in the movies at the very least in that because it's just the first one and I just love how my favorite line in in, in the in the soup you know grocery store supermarket scene was when he goes well what sort of thoughts are they they're the most horrible thoughts you've ever had oh man that sticks with you I'm like oh it's so good oh man this performance is so good guys it's the perfect balance <laughs> of Michael Mann going about surrealism and all this visual stuff but the subtlety and the and the mm-hmm. understate underplayed sort of lines oh it's great oh so good so good he tells his wife that he has to break his promise for good and try and get into the killer's head for everyone's sake to stop the killing he sends them to her father's in montana so that he doesn't have to worry about them and stares at the window at his own reflection saying it's just you and me now sport which of course you can sort of take as 
a taunt to Dollarhide, but it's also interpretable as him talking to his greatest asset and biggest liability, his ability to get into their minds at his own mental well-being's expense. And going back to the soundtrack, that you don't get the full swell of Graham's theme by Michael Rubini, I think the composer who did the theme, but you get the under, like this little notions of Graham's theme, which is by far, I think this was, I think you ever seen that episode in Community where Dean Pelton looks at the dogs and he goes, "This, I hope this isn't awakening." This better not awaken anything in me. That happened to me with this when I was listening to this sort of synth music. I was like, "I guess I like synth now. I really, really like it because it's awesome." Yeah, hey, that's a good thing to have awakened in you. Exactly, exactly. In St. Louis, Dollarhide is working at his day job in a film lab which you may notice the blue lights here because this is the safety of everyday life for Francis. He does enter the black room, which this is soaked in green as he learns about the tools that he'll need for his next crime from Reba McLean, who he's also, this is his first time meeting her, I believe. Yeah. She's a blind coworker of his. He offers to take her home and they quickly develop crushes on each other, though he does still fear rejection from her and refuses to let her touch his face. Yeah, trust me, I'm smiling. But even yeah, that ooh. is just like because he's reaching for his hand and and yeah, Reba McLean. Oh, he goes to like he starts to let her. She gets very close and then he grabs her hand. Yeah, he's so he's so scared of rejection. Yes, yes, it is the balance he has between like <laughs> because he is a six foot seven guy. And the thing is, Tom Newton has this gentle voice anyway. Like whenever he does other roles. And he's really leaned into that in this role where yeah. he's played up his giant size. And like he said, he just started bodybuilding and he's this big, scary thing. And just him delivering any sort of line, it just amps her up even further. Trust me, I'm smiling. Oh, God. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't smiling, people. He wasn't. <laughs> yes, that is important to note. <laughs> yeah. He was not smiling when he said, trust me, I'm smiling. He's a liar as well as a killer. <laughs> She lets him take her somewhere as a surprise, and it's to the zoo, where a tiger is about to get his tooth capped. Reba is entranced, running her hands through its fur and admiring its power despite the tranquilization, which obviously speaks to Francis, who clearly sees himself in this tiger. It's a really kind of beautiful scene to see him be so touched by this and feel like maybe he can let her in. And he it looked like he was getting off, but that makes sense. In a way, he was. And, and also, Shriekback's Coelacanth, I think it is. Mm-hmm. That song, oh my god. Just uh, Yeah, it's a good one. The soundtrack to this is really great. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a real tiger. It was like, it was knocked out. Knocked the yeah. fuck out. And I was like, <laughs> it, what, they got right up close. And when he saw the teeth, I said, even if it's unconscious. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. She, like, shoves her hand, like, right in there, too. She's like, oh, it's warm. It's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> oh, like, he's like, give me an hour, then we'll see who's warm. Yeah, like, mm. you don't want to fuck mm. around with a tiger, man. <laughs> Meanwhile, while this is happening, perhaps the best day of Francis's life, uh, Will is spiraling, sitting in an evidence locker and trying to peer into Dollarhide's soul. But he is getting closer and closer. Dollarhide takes Reba to his place after dinner, His apartment, soaked in green, contrasts her blue shirt because she is obviously drawing him away from this uh, subversion and and killing and everything. But 
she has no idea that he's studying the home video footage of the next family of victims. And her just sitting there while he studies this, that's some scary shit too, man. He just calls it homework or something like that. Just Yeah. Oh, such a creep. Um, he really is. And uh, there's a lot of intense close-ups again as he's conflicted between the desire he feels for Reba and what he feels as the Red Dragon, which is specifically that he is elevated beyond this sort of thing and humanity in general. And this is part of what Will eventually comes to realize, is that these murders are lashing out because of the fear of rejection and a desire for acceptance. And if he transcends, people will, as he says, owe him all. Yeah. And that desire for people to, to accept him and see him and be in awe that is all so wrapped up in this that the first time that someone takes the initiative and is like, yeah, I like you, you know, she kisses him, the tape runs out while they have sex. He is so overcome with emotion yeah. that he cries, into a hand. he cries, he cries into her hand. He finally lets her see him in her own way. Yeah. And he listens to her heart. Mirroring the tiger. Exactly. It's, there's just a lot of really great stuff happening in this scene. She is bringing him back towards humanity. She was wearing the blue. Now they're in the blue light. She represented that safety and, and pulling him back. Yeah. Speaking of Man Hunter, when people, like you said, may call it dated. I, I agree with you calling it as a time capsule of that period. However, there's a lot of relevance when you look at Dollarhide and the sort of the recent spat of killings of these rejected loners and the sort of mm-hmm. encapsulates what these outcasts are doing exactly and the sort of not sympathy that they deserve, but the understanding of, oh, that's probably what you're looking for, but you're still fucked up and you're still a horrible, horrible mess of a person, but this was the first one to do it again. Like I mentioned, not to do, I'm crazy, I'm going to kill you, but it's more like, <laughs> I have pain, I have pain, but it's also, my pain doesn't justify what the fuck you're doing. Right. I think that's exactly it, is that you can understand where they're coming from a little bit, but also, like, their actions are propagating the issue. Exactly. Snake eating his own ass. Classic Ouroboros <laughs> situation. Yes, there it is. I wanted you to say it because I can never say that word. <laughs> I may have fucked it up. Who even knows? I don't want to hear about it, people. Yeah. If, you, if I fucked it up, don't tweet at me about it. Don't. You're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> he asks when they can see each other again. Yeah. And when she says, oh, to give her a second to think about it, he immediately recoils, which I think is very telling. Yeah. That he, he feels like he's putting himself out there. And the second she even takes a moment to consider when the next time they could see each other was, he says, that's it. Everything is exactly what I feared. I'm being rejected. She doesn't actually want to see me again. It's a very quick moment, but again, a lot of the subtlety that the performances are bringing to this movie balances out the big expressionist movements of man himself and Spinati's lighting in a way that is so great. Yeah, and, and it also plays back to the whole sort of Dollarhide fantasy of performance and in his head. He's probably thinking, right, I'm going to go ahead with this and I'm going to put myself out there. And then when he hears the all. He recalls because he's like, "This is not how the fantasy should play out." Now you have accepted mm. me. Why am I? Why? Why are you saying oh? But then, 
obviously she does which is she like, says we can meet at my house that's it yeah oh no no Re- reba no big mistake reba but he embraces her in relief yeah. that night will gets a phone call from dr lecter who taunts him about a killing that will did in the line of duty and that it feels good and gives you power that god has and this is where things start to click for will and you can literally see green lights flickering up behind him yeah. as he sits in this room. It's right there. It's it's great. I mean, the the room itself is a wash in blue, but this green, as as he starts to understand, pops up, and then he visits the crime scene in his mind, which is very freaky as the eyes are completely empty yeah. to represent the mirrors that Dollarhide puts in there. Oh, j- just and going I- back to uh, the the phone call between Will and Lecter. Mm-hmm. That's another cozy thing. So cozy. And it just so f- mm-hmm. it's just like literally within the film, maybe what a few days or a week ago, he was sending someone to kill your family, Will. <laughs> hey bestie. Yeah, hey, how you doing? Oh, sorry <laughs> about that. It's cool. I know. We all have our yeah. Mondays, right? That's probably what Will said. <laughs> Will and Garfield both. But I just love it how that lector is like on his bed with his he has his feet up, doesn't he? If I remember like he's just sort of chilling. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. He's on the phone, and like, and that's another thing. Why would they give him phone phone privileges after he tried to? But that's that's the thing that I'm cool with because I want to see him cozy talking to his best friend. I feel like he probably legally has to be allowed to make calls to his lawyer, and he just uh, did the same kind of jazz where he fucked with the operator and got him to dial out. Yeah, we want Will Graham as your attorney. He seems like a good, reliable <laughs> guy. Not, 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 yeah, not off kilter at all. He got his law degree on the street of hard knocks, baby. <laughs> yeah, with the, with the first and everything. He's a master of hard knocks. <laughs> that night, Francis was outside Reba's to meet her, but he sees her escorted home by another co-worker. And as this happens, strong as I am. Yes, prime right? movers. Yes, yes. Oh. And... The lyrics echo his fears about opening himself up to pain Something as Francis. Thing that I can't remember the lyrics. So good. Strong as I am, there is something about this that scares me. Yes. Something like that. Yes. <laughs> when the man reaches over to get some pollen off her face, though, Francis sees him reaching in for a kiss. And again, this is quickly bathed in that ethereal euphoria pink and yellow that accompanies the romance and union of the previous Graham sex scene. And he is driven completely over the edge here. He rips up his dashboard with his bare hands, quickly dispatches the man with a few silent shots right in the dang gut. Yeah, and he just yanks him into the bushes. Again, it's just an understated that even though he is six foot seven, Tom Noonan is kind of slender. Like, he doesn't seem mm-hmm. like Arnie, but it just sort of works with him just yanking him into the bushes. And, yeah. <laughs> oh. and, I, and I don't know if you notice as well, because obviously this is when. The, the red dragon is present he's not sort of hunched over anymore yeah he's, yeah exactly yeah he's just Ooh. standing up straight and his full height yeah it's the red dragon yeah he just <laughs> what did he say oh, yeah francis is gone francis yeah he's is there gone. well yeah he he knocks Ooh, on yeah, reva's yeah. door yeah 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 and it's completely green except for the same elated yellow pink light casting from behind him and he says it's me when she asks who's there and she opens the door and says francis and he retorts that francis is gone forever before abducting her there is no more francis only the red dragon is left 
and it's just that delivery where I, I think in the remake Francis is gone forever yeah the, 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 the overstated but no he has the same sort of voice he just has a subtle difference in his 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 posture and mm-hmm. just the way he speaks is a bit like not he doesn't do a deep voice he doesn't grunt he doesn't flap his wings pretending he's a dragon or anything like that ah, <laughs> exactly. Francis is gone forever <laughs> yeah, it's that, me Bane yeah. <laughs> that, that is the mashup that we never asked for but we totally deserve <laughs> yeah if someone just put Bane in, in Man Hunter that, that'll for work for you <laughs> oh yeah that, that, that strangely would work because he's also terrifying nobody of, cared who I was until I got the red dragon tattoo yes yes uh, I need 300 go. millimeters of uh, what, what did you say the the, the night vision stock footage that he needed oh, yeah. from me. Yeah, that's what Bane needs uh, to take down Gotham. Yes. I need all take the footage. Take back your city. While I run rampant as the dragon. <laughs> um, oh, man. Tensions flare between Graham and Crawford as Crawford oh. is willing to write off this family as already lost. While Graham resents being dragged back into this life and being subjected to imagining all the future families killed unless he stops Dollarhide, which this is a very interesting scene that I feel like is easy to overlook when you're thinking about how Crawford is for real. Just like, yeah, they're fucking dead already. Let's just go home. (laughs) Just that two, three lines where they have like, yeah, where he goes like, oh, we love the Learjet prepping ready anywhere. It's fine. And he goes, you know well what I did when, when he said, you show me one, two, three, I picture, you know, three, four, five. And he goes, you're fucking right. And I'll fucking do it again. Like, Don't you fucking yeah. tell him. I just, it's so heated. <laughs> and it's like, I've had that argument numerous times in my life. Mm. And that is exactly how it goes. <laughs> I'll fucking do it again. <laughs> and like, That's right. But so Graham, they're up late. He's looking for a connection between the families. And Graham realizes that the padlock seen in the video, but later removed is why Francis had the bolt cutters that he used on the branch. He also realizes that since he couldn't see the glass door from behind the house, but was prepared with the glass cutter, he must have seen their home videos. Haven't you, my man? <laughs> and then Graham theme swells. This is what I was on about. This is awesome. Triumph. This, yes. is, this is the moment. When he looks at himself in the reflection as well. That, oh, that yes. moment is so good. It's, it's great. And you'll notice, folks, Green. the light is that classic euphoric pinkish yellow from the building outside and the little bits around him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is quite a catch. He's soaking in the satisfaction of understanding that euphoria. He he feels like he understands and uh, that uh, this, this person must work at the film lab where the videos were processed. Reba awakes disoriented and at Francis's house and he overwhelms her with Inagata de Vida as she asks fearfully why he's doing this, and he lurks in the shadows. My favorite hymn by Iron <laughs> Butterfly. <laughs> Folks, remember The Simpsons? Yes, and remember when Simpsons was very, very good? That's what I'm referencing right now. I, I remember it fondly. <laughs> Suddenly, he reaches out and grabs her face, um, from which she recoils, and he stalks away while she cowers in fear. And, you know, it's like, I don't know what he expected her to do, there when he grabbed her like that but it's again it feels like he's taking it as rejection i think it's also like a mirror of when she tries to touch his face and she Mm -hmm. recall he's like well how about if i try it on you different situation francis different situation man (laughs) not the same pal (laughs) graham and crawford 
narrow down the names and discover that Dollar Hyde fits the description. But when Graham sees the terrifying photo on the ID, yes. he's sure that it's Francis and they, they head to his home. One of the police officers, don't know the actor's name, but do you remember Barney in Silence of the Lambs? Uh, who, was, who was like Hannibal's caretaker? Uh, right. And that's the actor. Wow. He was a man. He was, you know, the one that's, who's the sort yeah. of SWAT guy. That's him. Holy shit. I can't wow. remember the actor's name, but it's, yeah, Barney. Barney, the, the caretaker. Barney Rubble. Yes, I was thinking <laughs> the dinosaur, but yeah, <laughs> whichever one. <laughs> Francis is prepping to kill Reba. He breaks glass for her eyes and a larger piece to do the deed with. And Will is approaching from the back in a Gata de Vida, still audible from the house, which is a nice touch that I like. Yeah. And he sees Reba struggling with Francis. Although he's moving slow, he like sees himself in the glass as he holds it up to her throat, which is an interesting move. And since the police are still getting in position, rather than wait, Will throws himself through a window at Francis. Yes. Quickly slashes his face and throws him right into the damn fridge. What's that fridge ever done? <laughs> Honestly. I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but Will is sitting there recovering. Dollarhide runs and grabs his shotgun, which he uses to shoot out the lights before bursting right through the freaking wall with the landscape of Mars on it. He does get shot a few times, but takes several cops with him and doesn't seem to be noticing the bullet wounds. Again, sort of that transcending that he was looking for. He goes to shoot Will, but Will gets him first, shooting him several times and finishing him off as the song begs, won't you please take my hand? Again, sort of a nice moment of the song lyrics kind of reflecting what's happening on the screen, or at least the emotions that are going on. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in this scene. Firstly, because the shooting schedule of this movie was extremely fast-paced, and this was done done at the end of principal (laughs) photography, so most of the crew was gone already. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Um, And this means that there was no special effects crew on hand to do the blood splatter, so the rest of the crew just had to blow ketchup at them through (laughs) hoses to provide the effect. So you just shoot some ketchup out at him. That is like very Evil Dead to me, and I love it. And and yeah, yeah, you could tell it's ketchup, but it works. <laughs> and it does work. Yeah, and uh, you know they use the actual corn syrup for the for the pool of blood. So for these few yeah. moments, I think the ketchup is fine. Yes, uh, and it's also just worth noting that when you're talking about the transcendence of Dollarhide. He gets shot by the copper, but it takes Will to shoot him like five or six times. But these are the same bullets that before when we were doing the sting, the one of the, the gun specialists is, oh, one round kills a guy dead. It took six mm, to kill Francis. That's right. And they also were like, you're not going to need that. Y- yeah, you did. You sure did need that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe even more. <laughs> yeah. They also, speaking of the bullets, uh, had to get around bullet impact because there was no special effects team. And Joan Allen, who plays Reba, talked about how man literally just had to like hurl jars so yeah. that they oh, would yeah, shatter. Yeah. I thought it was um, claps. I thought it was that clap. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peterson got a chunk of glass stuck in his thigh because while he was laying there on the floor, there's that moment where like the eggs fly everywhere yeah. and man is just standing over him like, ah, throws a fucking <laughs> jar at him. <laughs> <laughs> that feels no. I think Peterson would be used to it because he just worked with William Freakin, and Freakin <laughs> is kind of like that. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Just learn all about the broken coccyx of uh, Ellen Burstyn. <laughs> yeah, absolute <God>. madman. <laughs> yeah. We also we talked about the removal of the tattoo, 
but the pool of blood that forms around Dollarhide here at the end of the scene is a pretty serious allusion to the red dragon tattoos that Francis has in the books. Mm. It looks a lot like the cover of the book itself um, to have the like wings kind of spread out on the side of him there. It looks really, really good. But this, this shot left uh, Noonan lying in that corn syrup for so long that he actually like fused to the ground. Because <laughs> when it dries, it becomes basically cement. <laughs> He's sitting there for hours, just friggin' stuck to the floor. That's dedication. I'm thinking, like, when it becomes like cement, my brain instantly went to the bat gog, the bat gremlin in Gremlins Two. <laughs> That's what Noonan is. Hell yes. Where is that remake featuring Tom Noonan? That's the, cement, the yeah. bat gremlin who who gets dunked in cement. Yeah, keep everything the same. Have Hulk Hogan in it, but Tom Noonan is the (laughs) Kremlin who flies around. But the paramedics rush in. The sky is a beautiful pink and blue, demonstrating Graham's euphoria that things can return to normal, and he can head back to the life that he left behind as he's reunited with his son and his wife. He says that he was going to wait until he had worked things out mentally, and she says, I didn't want to wait. And, uh, you know, again, you can check out the color of the clothing, blue and pink, just like the sky. And uh, when his wife asks how many of the turtles made it, he says most of them, but he is satisfied that he did his best in contrast to the beginning when, again, unrealistically, he promises his son that they're all going to survive. And at some point, all you can do is try and save the people that you can and this is indicative of the whole movie, everyone. There they sum things up. <laughs> there it is. George does it for you. And all this scored by the wonderful song by Red Seven, Heartbeat, which I think he had in a Miami Vice episode as well. Hell yeah, he did. It's such a good song. They walk off and stare out at the ocean to the to the hot tunes of that song, and it's fucking delightful, folks. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is an earned... Well, it's not quite a happy ending, is it? Because Graham can relapse at any moment and it feels genuine, but it is an earned ending. It is well worth it. We are at the very least hopeful that he is able to put it behind him once again. And uh, famously, no one ever killed anyone ever again after this movie. Yeah. So (laughs) that worked out well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) win-win. Absolutely. And now, Umar, we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And you're going to start things off, pal. This is the best horror movie ever made because it does so much with so little. And it does it, well, well, it looks effortlessly, but going into the research that the cast, the crew, and everything about it, it just invites you into this wonderful weird world that Mm -hmm. is still grounded you still have one foot in reality but it just unnerves you at the right time and it just (laughs) and strangely it has that nice calming cozy comfortable moments but it's just how it flows and how it goes into that satisfying end which is vastly different than the book and the remake but it is so much better, in my opinion, that it just, like I just said, it just is an earned ending to such a very, very well-put-together 
artistic. <laughs> That's one word <laughs> I haven't said yet, but it is so artistic and it's so meticulous. It yeah, it is the best horror film of all time. Yeah. Absolutely, I agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it would be one thing if this movie just had an interesting thing to say about isolation and the relationship between serial killers and the people who pursue them. Hmm. And it would be one thing if it just had some really incredible performances that were ahead of their time, you know, in terms of creating this image of what we view a profiler as you know this was yeah. before x-files this was before csi this was before it all this is what the precursor to mind hunter which very similar in title as well very similar yeah exactly and so it would be one thing if it was just that stuff but for it to have an incredible aesthetic mm. that also functions to elevate the movie not not style over substance at all but style adding to the substance, reinforcing the themes that we've seen put forth in this movie, that is something that just isn't done. And for them to manage that while also having the other aspects of it working at such an incredible level is something that has to make this the best horror movie ever made. Yeah, it is everyone doing the best they can and achieving that goal and even surpassing it because it's a time capsule in its time and when you look at nowadays with Stranger Things and uh, Fear Street where still very good and very competent films but they are taking a lot from yes they might be saying Goonies and you know whatever they have you know as in the zeitgeist at the time but these films like Manhunter have have offered so much to like the re reemergence of this sort of you know oh, yeah. neon all that neon and everything like yeah. there's no neon in the Goonies <laughs> no no but like it's there though it is prominent in what man was trying to do in this film and yeah. and I really love that quote that you had at the beginning which I never heard where it, where it was like his intention of the mm-hmm. film I'm like take a bow you have nailed <laughs> that and it is exactly what you know what I got out of the film absolutely and uh, you know what they say if you stare too long into the abyss the abyss stares back and I think that that really sums up what this movie is trying to say yeah so uh, thanks so much for coming on Umar and uh, I highly encourage people to check out Lad the Homecoming which I am very excited to have backed on Kickstarter and uh, so I have not only all three issues coming to me, but also an, a fun print, which I'm very excited about. And Ooh, yes, uh, yes, hell yeah! So tell people where they can check out the back issues and where they can look forward to reading the new one. The Kickstarter's upcoming Kickstarter's will be on you know Kickstarter. Just follow me on social media; you'll find it on there. But back issues. What's that social media? Just my name, Umadir. There you uh, go. It, it's you know, uh, luckily there's not a lot of Umadirs out there, so I would snag <laughs> that up right away. Um, but you can find digital or the print copies. Um, if I'm being honest, especially with the delivery and all that stuff nowadays, uh, digital will be you know less hands-on <laughs> for me. I'm just being honest here, but you do get issues one and two uh, digitally and and uh, on Gumroad. If you just type in my name in Gumroad, you'll find my store there where there's. Lad Untethered and also this new sort of mini anthology of my sort of short stories that I've put on there but for physical uh, is on Big Cartel again just find my name on Big Cartel I think it's or you can go Big Cartel uh, 
bigcartel.com uh, and, and you can get the physical copies on there and yeah that's about it uh, I do have some more comics coming in in fact I think I mentioned I've got my first sort of actual not self-created comic actually someone said hey let's give this guy a chance I can't give more details than that but that looks interesting so hopefully that should work out soon hell yeah well I'm looking forward to it very excited about all your upcoming work and uh, people should definitely check it out thank you thank you uh, as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl you can check out the patreon where we have all kinds of bonus episodes like we talked about ec comics speaking of comics mm-hmm. and all the crypt keeper and all that jazz we just had an episode with alana johnston aka the knife who came back to talk about freaky friday 2003 Starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. The best horror movie ever made. Yes, yes. (laughs) Also, uh, I know I mentioned it a while ago, and it kind of just faded away, but I've been doing that Psych Rewatch podcast. That's a lot of fun, called We Heard About Pluto. So if you're like, I wonder what George thinks about modern procedural sitcoms instead of horror movies, uh, guess what? I'll still connect it to horror a lot. So you should check that out. (laughs) And also, uh, we're doing an X-Files watch-along on the Patreon as well, which that also relates very heavily to this. So, a lot of things that are connected to Manhunter, because it's so good. You are a workhorse, and also, I can't believe you've done over 100 episodes on this podcast. I tip my English hat to you. Technically, we have not actually done 100. I accidentally deleted a bunch of episodes and then had to re-upload them. Technicality, no damn boo over it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that's right. fine. I'll take it. I'll absolutely yeah. take it. I had to chuck a comedy bang bang reference in there. Just yeah. of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> Scotty Ox. I know my audience. Baby. I know my audience. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, Umar, and have a good one, everyone. Bye. Bye.